Well, good afternoon, everyone, again. Lovely to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Do you, uh, if you've got a Bible, do have Nehemiah uh, 5 open so you can look through the passage as we, uh, as we study it together. Um, yeah, it's a great privilege to be here to, uh, to talk to you, to, to preach God's word to you uh, this afternoon. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, uh, it's, it's a great chapter. There's lots to learn. Um, so let, let's dive in. Let's dive in. I want to start with a question. Have you ever been punched in the face? Have you ever been punched in the face? I'll be honest, I'm not sure I have, but I'm sure it really hurts, right? I'm sure it really hurts. Maybe then, maybe you've not been hit deliberately, but maybe you've had an accidental elbow kind of cracking on the nose, something like that. It's really painful and sore, isn't it? Actually, the closest I've ever been to that sort of thing is when I fainted and I hit my head on the back of a car. And that really hurt, let me tell you. It took a while to uh, recover. There's lots of things in our world, those uh, around us, that have the potential to hurt us. And actually, in the previous chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 4, we, we saw that happening. We saw God's people facing uh, oppression and threat from, from enemies of the people. They taunted, they mocked the people building the wall, saying, well, what's that wall? You know, it's nothing. And then they threatened to, to attack physically. Uh, they had to defend themselves as they built. So they... We have this outside force uh, bringing great danger to the people. It's that kind of equivalent of a, of a punch in the face. But today, we might face similar things, might we? We might face similar threats uh, as, as, as God's church. We might face ridicule. Uh, in certain parts of the world, we will face violence and persecution. And I guess to a certain extent, we're not surprised. We're not surprised when people in the world uh, turn against Christians, when they oppose us. Uh, when they hate us. It's not that surprising. But do we expect it when there's trouble inside the church? And I think actually that's that's actually can be far more serious and far more dangerous. Not to trivialise it, but I imagine most of us would rather have a punch to the face than say, find out that you've, you've got cancer. It would be far more serious. You know, when the body turns against itself, Things are really, really serious. And that's what we get happening in chapter 5 of Nehemiah. We get this serious example of internal conflict between God's people. And it's challenging. It'll be challenging for us to consider this afternoon. Challenging for you to consider as you think about growing as a church. If you've been here the last few weeks, I know I haven't, but I've been catching up on the podcast. Uh, we've been following the story of Nehemiah. He's come to Jerusalem to, to build the wall and to rebuild it, to rebuild the city. Uh, and actually, Wayne was really helpful a couple of weeks ago talking about the significance and you know, why, why are we so bothered about this wall? It's because it's a physical reality that points to a spiritual one. It's a symbol of their, their national identity as God's people. It, it shows God's glory, God's honour being restored. And it, it kind of strengthens the people, unites them to come and worship God more faithfully and, and more closely. And so we've seen Nehemiah coming, and he's a great man, a powerful, prayerful leader of God's people. And he rallies the people together. We, you know, loads of people come and get stuck into building the wall. He deals with the opposition when it comes, like, like, like last week we saw. But like I said, chapter 5 brings a new problem, this internal conflict. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it says. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Great outcry 
This is strong, strong language. This is the same language used uh, in the Exodus uh, when God's people were, were in slavery and crying out to God. It's that same uh, concept, that same words. It's the men and their wives, their whole families are crying out because the situation that they're in is, is really dangerous, really serious. So we need to dig into this passage. We're going to think about what went wrong uh, and what Nehemiah did about it and what we can learn from it. So my first, my first heading this morning is this, anger at exploitation. Anger at exploitation, verses 1 to 6. Now we saw in chapter 3, there were many, many people involved in the building project. Lots of people came together, and that included you know, farmers, and landowners, people who may have not been that well off. They would have been farming to survive. They would have nothing to fall back on. But at the same time, the work needed doing. Everyone was committed to this. And it needed doing fast. There were people coming to try and, you know, threaten. And actually, at the end of chapter 4, in verse 22, Nehemiah asks everyone to stay in the city, to guard it at night, to come and build during the day. So there was no one left to go and farm and get grain and do these things. And that left some falling into this real deep spiral of poverty. That You know, we've got these three complaints. We'll, we'll look through them in a second. But it's almost as if they, they get worse. You know, they don't, they're not separate categories. It's like one by one, they, they get worse. They spiral downwards. So we see in verse 2, some had large families, but they weren't producing the grain. They couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't afford to buy it. So verse 3, that led to some of them mortgaging their fields. Mortgaging their fields so they could get grain, so they could live. But then they've got no way to repay that debt. They're getting themselves into more debt. So verses four and five, we see it gets worse. They had to borrow the money even to pay the taxes uh, for, for Persia. And all of this came from the, the kind of wealthy fellow Jews that were there uh, at the time. If you go back to, to the start of Ezra, uh, talking about when people came back from exile, we see that some came back really wealthy. God, God blessed them in that way. But for those with no money, it, it was a serious situation. We see in verse five, chapter 5, just how serious it is. Look at verse 5 with me. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. See, this is really serious. God's people are selling each other into slavery to pay these debts. And they've got no other choice. It says their daughters are already, already taken, that they would have been given as wives to, to those in the wealthier family. No wonder they felt powerless, humiliated, exploited by their Jewish brothers. Now, exploited, it does sound like a strong word, doesn't it, for this situation? But I think it's fair. Because if you go back to God's law, you go back to the, to the, the law that God sets out, it's very clear that you're not supposed to do that. Leviticus 25, verse 35 says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and they're unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them. Don't profit from them. Don't take interest. Verse 39 says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. Very clear. Don't make them slaves. Treat them as hired workers. Look after them. They're to work with you until the year of Jubilee. So you see, God's people had not, they weren't doing what God had told them to do. 
these wealthier Jews, they were, they were charging interest, they were accepting slavery, they were exploiting the hardship that their brothers and sisters were facing uh, by sacrificing everything to build the wall, to kind of have, regain that, that national identity. So the wall was going up. What's the, what's the point if inside the wall is just exploitation and greed and sin and no, no unity? What would be the point in that? And we see in verse 6 that Nehemiah is very angry about this. Yeah, very angry. It's literally burned with anger. He became hot with anger. He's angry at the injustice and the wrongdoing. He's angry at the, the dishonor it's done to God. And it's, it's a good sort of anger. It's a righteous anger. We don't often think of anger as a good thing because we're sinful people when we get angry often. But it's sometimes good and right to be angry. Think about Jesus clearing the temple. It's good and right to be angry at sin and injustice. And sometimes think, well, maybe I should be more angry at some of the situations going on in the world. Maybe I need to think more about that. But you see that his anger, it stresses the horror, the horror of what's going on. It's cancer, I mentioned it earlier, it's an awful thing, isn't it? I'm I'm sorry if it has ever affected you or your family in any way. It's a terrible thing. But you see what's going on in this passage. It's like a cancer diagnosis for the people of God. It's that serious. What's happening is this kind of real injustice, this real horror that's been caused deliberately by greed and sin. It's really challenging, isn't it, for us to reflect on. Especially you know, as we consider together the, the task of building the church here in Kenilworth. There's no point, is there, in building the church if there's this kind of internal strife, internal conflict, because there'd be no strength to the building. There'd be no firm foundation, no glory given to God. Now, you know, I recognise I don't, I don't know you very well. Uh, I hope, God willing, that it will be possible to do that, to get to know you uh, better so it's hard to really apply this closely without, without knowing it better. But let me just suggest a few questions to, just to, for you to reflect on, to get you thinking, uh, that, that might help, uh, you know, think about how to apply this, this passage. Have we put our, our own comfort and prosperity before that of the church family? Have we put our own comfort and prosperity before that of the church family? How we choose to use our time and our gifts and our money how do we do that? Have we, have we sought to do that in a good way? What about this one? Are we tempted to take advantage of other people in the church? Is that a temptation for us? Maybe overburdening them, giving others too much to do, or requiring too much of people. Maybe judging others or gossiping behind their backs. I guess sum it up. Are there ways that we've been selfish in how we've sought to be part of our churches? I know for myself that there, there's always temptations to, to, to fall into those, those, those things. So I just wanted to encourage you really to reflect this week, to, to go in and, and look at this passage again and, and ask for God's help and prayer to, to guide you and maybe convict you by his spirit and, and challenge you. Is there any way you might have acted wrongly to your, to your brothers and sisters, even if it's unintentional? What a great opportunity to reconcile uh, those differences. So we, we see in these, these verses, we see this exploitation, we see the kind of the outer actions of what's going on. But there is something deeper going on. There's a deeper spiritual problem 
that needed dealing with. And we'll see, we'll draw that out in, in the next, uh, the, through the next section. Uh, my next heading is this, repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration, verses 7 through to 13. If you look at verse 7, you see that Nehemiah uses his anger well. He, uh, he ponders in his mind. He ponders. It's not just pondering, it's like a deep consideration. He thinks about it really carefully. He resolves the best way forwards. And, and we see at the end of verse 7, he goes and he confronts uh, some of these people. He says, you are charging your own people interests. Now, I think we have to read between the lines a little bit here. And it, it seems as if he doesn't really get much response. You know, maybe they just ignore him. Maybe they don't really do anything about it. Because he does something next to show how serious it is. I remember once at work, uh, we, we were all called into the, the conference room. Everyone stopped work and said, right, come together. We've got a supportive meeting. And you know it's serious, don't you? They tell you to stop working during the day and come and gather together. And uh, I think the company was being sold and there was potential for job cuts. And they, they stopped work to let us know. And you see, Nehemiah does the same thing here. You see what he does? Uh, uh, he gathers together. He calls together a large meeting to deal with. He's like, right, everyone stop building and come together for this. We need to deal with this. This is a big problem. It's worth stopping the building, even how desperate we are to finish the work. We've got to deal with this first. So he gathers everyone together and he lays out the problem. He talks about the financial issues. But you see, more seriously, he talks about the issue of slavery. How they've been selling their brothers and sisters into it. These people have been brought back from exile. Do you see that in verse 8? It says, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. They were, they were free, and you're making them slaves again. Do you see the horror of what you're doing, Nehemiah says? He's having none of, none of it. And it's quite powerful, isn't it, when, when there's silence. In a big group, when there's silence, you know God's working, or know something's happening. It's a sign of perhaps of accepting their guilt. They've got no defence, they've got no arguments. They're caught bang to rights. They, they were not doing what they were called to do. Verse 10 as well is interesting, isn't it? Because it says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. So is Nehemiah part of the problem here? Has he been doing the same thing? Well, I think not quite. I don't think he, he could, if he's going and saying, you're charging interest, I don't think he's probably doing that himself. He's definitely not, you know, accepting slaves. Uh, but I think he realizes that actually even lending money at this moment is too much. Even, even us lending money to each other is too much right now. This is a moment to unite us together. We need to build the wall. We need to put the collective need of people before the individual. We need to restore the honour of God's kingdom. So what can they do? Well, he says, let us stop charging interest. But that's perhaps not quite the, the exact you know, meaning of that. A, a better translation might be, let us absolve this debt. Let us wipe the slate clean. Let's let them off. Let's give them back the land and the money owed. You see, they do it with interest. That They let people off. They set them free from their debt so that they can survive. They can flourish. They can be part of God's kingdom. They can build the walls. It's a, it's a gracious and generous restoration. It's a beautiful moment, actually. Especially because they agree to it. I guess it wouldn't have been that good if they had thought, well, we're not going to do that. But they do. They agree. They show repentance, that they agree to do this. 
And Nehemiah calls the priests together. He's all, he calls them together and he gives this great picture. Look at verse 13. I shook out the robe, the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep his promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. It's a graphic picture of judgment. It's the kind of equivalent of, you know, emptying out your pockets and just scattering everything on the floor. It says, you know, if you fail to do this, then, then actually God's honour is at stake. You know, we see here, we see Nehemiah's faith coming out because he's not just concerned about the injustice. He's concerned about the injustice because of what, what it says about God. Because of the witness, that, or the, the terrible witness it's making uh, to the honour of God. He's motivated by his faith to make sure that the people honour God and glorify God by what they do. And it's wonderful, isn't it? We see uh, that they, they, they worship, they, they praise God. There's repentance, there's restoration. They are brothers and sisters before the Lord. They're, they're, they're united in their identity uh, uh, as God's people. And they carry out that clearing of debt, that, that they show their repentance by, by doing something. Now, I spoke earlier of, of challenging you to think about ways you might be, you may have been tempted to, to take advantage of other people. It's important to look for those actions, of course, but remember I said we need to also look for the roots of what's going on in our hearts that might cause us to do that. And we see the root here, look at verse 9. We see the root of what was going on here. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our gods to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? They weren't walking in the fear of gods. That again is there in the law. In Leviticus it says, do not take interest or any profit from them but fear your gods. That, that, that's what you need to do. You know, if you don't fear God, you have no awe of, your, of his sovereignty. You have no respect for his power. You don't really understand his, his will and his care and his love for his people. And that means you, you don't show love to, to God's people. Why would you if you haven't understood what God has done for you? That's true for us, isn't it? If we don't fear God, our good works tend to fade away. Our compassion, maybe it dwindles. Our love vanishes, frankly. We need to know, we need to, to fear God if we are going to treat others with the, the, the respect and the honour that they deserve, if we, if we are to put them above ourselves. Uh, as I was preparing for this, um, I, I was speaking to a friend who's planting a church in North London uh, with us. And I asked him, you know, have you, have you ever done anything on the kind of possible problems that could come up uh, in a church plant? Probably in any church, but particularly in church plants. So I just thought maybe that would be a helpful thing to be thinking about uh, as I prepared. And the second thing on the list that he sent me was this. When the Great Commission overrides the greatest commandments. So when the greatest commission, when the Great Commission overrides the greatest commandments, what's the greatest commandments? It's there in Mark 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is love your neighbour as yourself. So, of course, we're called to, to, to enact the Great Commission. We're called to go and make disciples. But actually, if we're not doing it with the love of God in our hearts and the love for each other as a church, then, you know, it doesn't work. There's no foundation to build upon. And I think Nehemiah knew this. That's why he was so passionate about 
bringing this restoration. There's no point in building the walls if we're not together as God's people, if we're not united in Christ. And that's the same for churches today. We need to be united around the gospel. So how do we do that? Well, we do that by seeking to, to with, with the Spirit's help, seeking to remember deeply that what God has done for us, responding in humble obedience and worship. And actually, we get that this passage points us to the gospel, doesn't it? Do you see that? It made me think of that, that very famous verse in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We know the love of God. We know what Christ has done. He died on the cross with our debt on his shoulders, the debt of our sin. He faced God's wrath so that we could be saved. We could be forgiven. We could be welcomed into God's family. It's a staggering thing to, to think that our debt has been wiped away. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us, because he has chosen to save us. That's what unites us. All of us here today, whatever our social status, whatever our wealth, whatever our sort of seeming level of importance in the world, every one of us, we must come on our knees to Jesus. We must come and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Each and every one of us, we do that. That's what unites us. There's no difference between us. We all come to Christ on our knees, asking for mercy. And as we do, as we come in repentance, he, he gives that mercy freely. He gives us his grace. He wipes the debt clean. And that calls us then to, to show that same mercy, that same love to other people around us, to our church family, to the wider community. We're called here to do that, to seek that kind of love and mercy that, that, that Jesus has first shown us. Let me encourage you to, to be seeking God's help, God's guidance, as KCC continues. It's worth pointing out just briefly, in verse 9 as well, do you see why, why this was happening? So why this was so important? It was because it was to avoid the reproach of their Gentile enemies. This was to do with the witness of God's people. If they're not united, it's a really bad witness. And maybe, you know, I don't know, I don't know you today, I don't know if there's anyone here who's, who's not a believer, if anyone who isn't trusted in Christ. And maybe that's because you've just always felt that actually the church is not a good witness uh, in the world. You know, it doesn't seem to have that unity, or it doesn't seem to have that, 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 that feeling that it just tends to make people feel bad and judge each other and... Um, we have feelings of self-righteousness, perhaps. I'm sorry if that has been your experience, but do you see actually here today, you see in this passage that it points us that, that genuine faith in God, it, it should lead not to that, but it should lead to, to gracious forgiveness and mercy and unconditional love and forgiveness. That is somewhere you, you cannot find that anywhere else, but you can find that in Christ. So encourage you to, to think about that and, and come to come to him yourself. One more point uh, before before we finish the, the last few verses, fourteen to nineteen. It shows us a, a godly, generous example. A godly, generous example. We get this kind of detailed picture at this moment of restoration and unity, and then it's almost like Nehemiah zooms out a little bit, and he goes on to say, "Well." Actually, you know, the, everything I did in Jerusalem kind of was with the same principles, that same mindset. He was governor for, for 
a number of years, 12 years. And that could have come with great benefits. You know, he could have charged tax on the people. He could have lived the higher life and claimed all the food that he was supposed to claim and just partied up. And it sounds like the previous governors were kind of doing that, wasn't it? You see, they were placing heavy burdens on, on the people, uh, taking money and food away from the people. And Nehemiah says, that, that's not a good thing. That, that's not what I chose to do. He didn't take his permitted allowance. He fed himself from his own pockets. He was clearly well off. He was clearly generous. Like He fed 150 guests and the visitors that came. He, I can't imagine how many animals he must have got through in those 12 years, but it must have been a lot. He was happy to bear that cost as he understood the burdens placed on the people. You know, he didn't want to add to that as, the, the, as they united to, to rebuild the wall. But more importantly, you see, it wasn't just that. The end of verse 15, he says, it's out of reverence for God. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. They had come to the city not to, you know, acquire wealth and riches for themselves and land. They were there to work. They were there to serve the people. Their task was to build the wall and, and restore God's glory and honor. Uh, and to do that out of reverence for him. And they were willing to sacrifice what they had to make that happen. What we see here is a wonderful picture of servant leadership playing out. We see, we see his, his prayer at the end. Remember me with faith in my God. For all I've done for these people, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it, to our Westerners? It seems a bit selfish, that maybe not the sort of prayer we were praying. But I think really what he's just saying, look, I've sought to honour you by valuing your people, by seeking, you know, to, to encourage your people to show you glory. So it's a prayer that he's trying to reflect that. But I think there's, there's a challenge here for, for the leaders of churches. We're called to lead by example. We're called to be servant leaders. To not do it for our own benefit, our own advancement, our own prosperity in any way. But we're called to lead for the benefit of the church, to serve the church in what we do. And if you do decide to, to call me here as an elder, that, that, that's something that I would be seeking to do, to be a servant leader. And it would be right for, for you to challenge me if, if I did seem to be, you know, putting my own comfort, my own prosperity before that of the church family. Called to be like Nehemiah, we're called to, 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 to sacrifice things for the sake of, of the glory of God and the unity of the people. But of course, it's not just leaders, is it? It's actually an example for us all to follow, uh, altogether. There's some great verses in Philippians chapter 2 that talk about this. Verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's what we're called to do, isn't it? We're called to, to have servant hearts, uh, to, to follow Christ's example, to, to use our gifts and our resources sacrificially, to, to further the work of the gospel, whether it's here in Kenilworth, whether it's wherever, you know, God's, uh, whether got, where the gospel is proclaimed. That's what we're called to do. And there's nothing, there's nothing worth holding on to in our lives when we consider actually what Christ has sacrificed for us first. You know, Nehemiah, he, he was willing to sacrifice his wealth, his position, perhaps, for the benefit of the people. Jesus sacrificed everything for the benefit of people like you and me. Sinful people that deserve nothing, but he gave everything. He came down from heaven, he lived as a man, he, 
He served and cared for those he met, and he came to die to save them. And he rose as Lord and Savior. It's glorious news, isn't it? Uh, one brilliant quote that I found as I was preparing said this Nehemiah might have been able to say, I ordered a daily feast and I wrote the check with my own hands. But Jesus could say, I ordered an eternal feast and I wrote the check with my own blood. I just read that, I had, it was a sort of goosebumps moment, you know, when you read that, you think, he wrote the check with his own blood. He, he, he brought us from, from death into his kingdom of light and life. By giving up his life in our place. Isn't that a glorious thing to, to reflect on, to think about what he has done for us? So we should be ready to take up our crosses, to follow him, to lay down our lives and to, to put God and others first. And God will remember us with favour as we do that together. As we do it not for our own glory, of course, but we do it in humility, recognising all that he's done for us. Friends, there's lots in this chapter, isn't there? There's lots to maybe go away and reflect on the, the danger of, of internal conflict, of, uh, of what that can do in a church, but also how it can be overcome through our fear of God, through knowing his grace, through being united in Christ and loving other people like he loves us. Let me pray and ask that that would be the case for KCC in the years ahead. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love that you have shown to us. Thank you for how Jesus has, has, has bought us from death and given us new life and paid by dying in our place. Lord, would you help, help us to be people with a similar sacrificial mindset who lay down our lives for the sake of you, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of the work here uh, and your work all over the world. Pray, Lord, that if there is anything here at KTC, if there's any internal conflicts or strife that, that you would be at work in, uh, bringing reconciliation and unity and rejoicing and praise. Uh, and we know that it's only possible, you know, in our sinful hearts, we cannot do it. But we know that you can do it uh, as we trust in you, as we, we seek your, your grace, your mercy, and your power by your spirit. So please do that uh, in this place. In Jesus' name.